0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dr. J's Shakespeare. I'm Dr. J. For today's episode, we turn to one of Shakespeare's lesser-known plays, Troilus and Cressida. Troilus and Cressida tells a story of the Trojan War. It's a story not found in Homer, but which was developed during the Middle Ages becoming so popular that by the time Shakespeare wrote his version, he was just one of a number of English playwrights to do so. Troilus and his beloved Cressida are Trojans, but when Cressida is swapped to the Greeks for a Trojan commander the Greeks have captured, Cressida becomes the lover of one of the Greek commanders. In popular culture, the name Cressida was thus a byword for faithless woman. Shakespeare's version, though, allows the viewer who chooses to, to sympathize with Cressida, in part by portraying the men of the play, both Greek and Trojan, with a great deal of cynicism. Troilus and Cressida is the most cynical of Shakespeare's plays, more satirical than either comic or tragic, though it has elements of both these more familiar genres. The passage I've chosen for this episode exemplifies this cynicism at its most extreme. It involves two characters who are in Homer's Iliad, the Trojan hero Hector and the Greek hero Achilles. Homer's Iliad begins in the tenth year of the Trojan War, with no end in sight, as the greatest fighter for the Greeks, Achilles, refuses to fight in a fit of pique over being disrespected by the ranking Greek commander. It isn't until the 18th of the Iliad's 24 books that Achilles, angered by the death of his friend Patroclus, decides to take the field, and not until book 22 that he confronts Hector, the slayer of Patroclus. This confrontation is what the Iliad has been building to from its opening lines, and I'd like to read it first, as Homer wrote it, before reading Shakespeare's telling of the same event. The contrast will let you see just how far Shakespeare's cynicism goes in Troilus and Cressida. As you listen to Homer's account, you'll hear references to the gods, particularly to Athena, Athena plays an active role, as do all the gods in these latter books, after having stayed on the sidelines earlier. Athena favors the Greeks, so she has deceived Hector into thinking he has another Trojan behind him to help, when in fact he's all alone. Athena also helps Achilles, returning his spear to him after he casts it at Hector and misses. So with that in mind, let's listen. Achilles has confronted Hector and is speaking to him as we join the story. From the Iliad by Homer, book 22. Achilles is speaking to Hector. Summon up what skills you have. By God, you'd better be a spearman and a fighter. Now there is no way out. Pallas Athena will have the upper hand of you. The weapon belongs to me. You'll pay the reckoning in full for all the pain my men have borne who met death by your spear. Achilles twirled and cast his shaft with its long shadow. Splendid Hector, keeping his eye upon the point, eluded it by ducking at the instant of the cast. So shaft and bronze shank passed him overhead and punched into the earth. But unperceived by Hector, Pallas Athena plucked it out and gave it back to Achilles. Hector said, A clean mess. Godlike as you are, you have not yet known doom for me from Zeus. You thought you had by heaven, then you turned into a word thrower, hoping to make me lose my fighting heart and head in fear of you. You cannot plant your spear between my shoulders while I am running. If you have the gift, just put it through my chest as I come forward. Now it's for you to dodge my own. Would God you'd give the whole shaft lodging in your body. War for the Trojans would be eased if you were blotted out, bane that you are. With this, Hector twirled his long spear shaft and cast it, hitting his enemy mid-shield, but off and away the spear rebounded. Furious that he had lost it, made his throw for nothing, Hector stood bemused. He had no other. Then he gave a great shout to Diophobos to ask him for a long spear. But there was no one near him, not a soul. Now in his heart the Trojan realized the truth and said, This is the end. The gods are calling deathward. I had thought a good soldier, Diophobos, was with me. He is inside the walls. Athena tricked me. Death is near and black, not at a distance, not to be evaded. Long ago this hour must have been to Zeus's liking and to the liking of his archer's son. They have been well disposed before, but now the appointed times upon me. Still I would not die without delivering a stroke or die ingloriously, but in some action memorable to men in days to come. With this, Hector drew the wedded blade that hung upon his left flank, ponderous and long, collecting all his might the way an eagle narrows himself to dive through shady cloud and strike a lamb or cowering hare. So Hector lanced ahead and swung his wedded blade. Achilles, with wild fury in his heart, pulled in upon his chest his beautiful shield, his helmet with four burnished metal ridges nodding above it, and the golden crest Hephaestus locked there, tossing in the wind. Conspicuous as the evening star that comes amid the first in heaven at fall of night and stands most lovely in the west, so shone in sunlight the fine-pointed spear Achilles pointed in his right hand with deadly aim at Hector, at the skin where most it lay exposed. But nearly all was covered by the bronze gear Hector took from slain Patroclus, showing only where his collarbones divided neck and shoulder, the bare throat where the destruction of a life is quickest. Here then, as the Trojan charged, Achilles drove his point straight through the tender neck. Hector fell into the dust. The confrontation between Hector and Achilles similarly comes at the climax of Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida, despite not being part of the central story of the two ill-fated lovers of the title. There are no gods in Shakespeare's version, but Achilles is still not alone. He has his myrmidons with him, fighters personally loyal to him. There is also one other figure present, though not speaking. It's a Greek soldier in splendid armor, armor that Hector covets when he sees it, and for which he chases and kills this unnamed Greek. Shakespeare's stage is quite fluid during this battle scene, with actors entering and exiting continually. Editors have divided the action into individual scenes, some no longer than a couple of lines. As I read, I'll drop these added scene designations and read it as one flowing scene, which is how it's experienced in the theater. I'll also expand the stage directions a bit to help you visualize the action and understand what's being said. The first change from Homer you'll see is that Achilles has gotten out of shape during the months he has refused to fight and quickly becomes out of breath when engaging with Hector. The second is the Greek in splendid armor whom Hector chases. The third is the presence of Achilles' myrmidons. These are just the first of the differences that make the confrontation in Shakespeare's version less heroic than we find it in Homer. More differences and less heroism follow. Let's listen. From Troilus and Cressida by William Shakespeare, Act 5. Outside the walls of Troy, Troilus, youngest brother of Hector, is fighting two of the Greek commanders, Ajax and Diomedes. Enter Hector. Troilus exits, fighting Diomedes and Ajax. Hector, yea, Troilus, O, oh, well fought, my youngest brother. Enter Achilles. Achilles, now do I see thee, ha, have at thee, Hector. They fight, Achilles becomes out of breath. Hector, pause if thou wilt. Achilles, I do disdain thy courtesy, proud Trojan. Be happy that my arms are out of use. My rest and negligence befriends thee now, but thou anon shalt hear of me again, till when, go seek thy fortune. Achilles exits. Hector. Fare thee well. I would have been much more a fresher man had I expected thee. Enter a Greek in splendid armor. Hector. Stand, stand thou Greek. Thou art a goodly mark. No, wilt thou not? I'd like thy armor well. I'll flush it and unlock the rivets all, but I'll be master of it. The Greek in splendid armor exits. Hector. Wilt thou not, beast, abide? Why then, fly on. I'll hunt thee for thy hide. Hector exits. Enter Achilles with myrmidons. Achilles. Come here about me, you my myrmidons. Mark what I say. Attend me where I wheel. Strike not a stroke, but keep yourselves in breath. And when I have the bloody Hector found, impale him with your weapons round about. In fellest manner, execute your arms. Follow me, sirs, and my proceedings I. It is decreed Hector the Great must die." Achilles exits with his myrmidons. Enter Hector with the body of the Greek in armor. Hector, most putrefied core, so fair without. Thy goodly armor thus hath cost thy life. Now is my day's work done. I'll take my breath. Rest, sword, thou hast thy fill of blood and death. Hector disarms. Enter Achilles and his myrmidons. Achilles, look, Hector, how the sun begins to set, how ugly night comes breathing at his heels. Even with the veil and darkening of the sun to close the day up, Hector's life is done. Hector, I am unarmed, forego this vantage, Greek. Achilles to his myrmidons, strike, fellow, strike! This is the man I seek. The Myrmidons kill Hector. Achilles. So Ilium, fall thou next. Come, Troy, sink down. Here lies thy heart, thy sinews, and thy bone. On Myrmidons, and cry you all amain. Achilles hath the mighty Hector slain. Horns sound retreat from both armies. Achilles. Hark, a retire upon our Grecian part. A Myrmidon, the Trojan trumpets sound alike, my lord. Achilles, the dragon wing of night o'erspreads the earth, and stickler like the armies separates. My half-supped sword, that frankly would have fed, pleased with this dainty bait, thus goes to bed. Achilles sheathes his sword. Achilles, come, tie Hector's body to my horse's tail. Along the field I will the Trojan trail. Achilles and his myrmidons exit with the bodies. This last image, Achilles dragging the body of Hector behind his horse, isn't an added touch of cynicism by Shakespeare. We find it too in Homer. It's why there are still two books to go in the Iliad. Achilles has achieved his great role in battle, but he still must achieve a moral character, which he does in Book 24 when he returns the body of Hector to the Trojans for a proper burial, despite his bitterness toward Hector for the death of his friend. There will be no such moral growth in Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida, in the final scene, Troilus gives a moving speech on the effect the death of Hector will have on the Trojans, particularly on Hector's wife and parents. But then he declares the vengeance he will wreak on Achilles, a vengeance that is beyond his abilities, and we see that nothing has changed. He and the other Trojan commanders then exit leaving the stage to Pandarus, the go-between between Troilus and Cressida, from whose name Pandarus we get the word Pander, who closes the play with an obscene couplet. The scene I've just read is short, some fifty lines, but two or three of its elements remain indelible in the mind. Achilles' contemptible treachery most stands out, he is supposed to be the greatest fighter of the greeks yet when he finds hector the second time he not only has his followers surround him with their spears leveled he has them kill hector then instructs them to tell everyone that he did the mighty deed to make the deed even more ignoble hector is unarmed having put down his sword just moments before remember too that in their first encounter Hector refrains from killing Achilles when Achilles becomes out of breath, because to do so wouldn't be honorable, a generosity Achilles scorns even as he takes advantage of it. But before we admire Hector, who until now has been the only honorable character in the play, before we admire Hector too much, remember the corpse that lies beside him, that of a Greek who attracted Hector's attention only because Hector desired the splendid armor he wore, which he is about to avail himself of when Achilles and his myrmidons come upon him. Troilus and Cressida, from beginning to end, is a bitter, cynical play, subverting the ideals of both love and war. It is also thoroughly Shakespearean, though the attitude beneath it goes against almost everything else that Shakespeare wrote. In his comedies, Shakespeare affirms romantic love, even as he frees it from the unrealistic expectations that often attend it. In Romeo and Juliet, only Shakespeare's second foray into tragedy, the love of the teenage pair is as beautiful as it is tragic while the love of the titular older lovers of Antony and Cleopatra, the last of Shakespeare's great tragedies, is if anything more grand and more tragic, if also more complex. Shakespeare's portrayal of war in other plays is similarly different and we find it here. The final combat between Hotspur and Hal in Henry the Fourth, Part I is full of nobility and pathos, though at the same time Hal's friend Falstaff undercuts the honor of war at every turn. Hal's speech to his band of brothers in Henry V still speaks to war's veterans today. So why is Troilus and Cressida so different? My teachers always cautioned me against reading Shakespeare's plays biographically but I've always done so anyway, not so much in accordance with Shakespeare's outward biography, of which we know surprisingly little, but in accordance with an inner biography which I imagine revealed in the plays themselves. But for Troilus and Cressida, I'll listen to my teachers and say we don't know why Shakespeare wrote this bitter satire. It finally doesn't matter, Troilus and Cressida adds to the equipment for living Shakespeare's plays give us. There are times I know Troilus and Cressida is true, just as there are times I know As You Like It is true, and times I know Henry V is true, and still other times I know Antonine Cleopatra is true. What I finally know isn't Shakespeare's inner biography following the arc of his plays but my own inner biography, which fluctuates even one moment to the next within its own arc, but which always finds in Shakespeare the expression of my feelings. Until next time, I'm Dr. J.